In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger arises, or anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerub-Besheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone uh, on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the reading's followed by music, I guess. 
We are making our way, brothers and sisters, into the latter part of 2019. Can you believe that? Sometimes I wonder where the year goes, but we are on the latter side of this year. Next Sunday, we will be in September, and before you know it, it'll be trick-or-treating and uh, Thanksgiving turkeys and Christmas presents, right? And as we find our way in the latter part of the year, we're also shifting in our congregational focus as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis. We've talked about the main characters over the course of the summer, and as Reuben mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're, we're now turning our attention from the characters in the story to the point of the story or the plot of the Bible story. What is this book trying to tell us? We keep talking about how the Bible is the redemption book, and that subject is introduced early in the book of Genesis, and that will be our focus for the rest of the year. And, and here as we begin to get out of summer, even though the thermostat doesn't say that yet, and, and head into the fall, our focus specifically is going to be on the problem behind the redemption story, the problem that the Bible proposes to address, to answer, and that is, and that is the problem of sin. And we're going to be talking about that over the course of the next couple of months, the problem of sin. And understand that when I say that, I recognize that saying we're going to be focused on the problem of sin probably doesn't do a whole lot to stir your heart and think, wow, I'm looking forward to coming back next Sunday because maybe we're going to talk about sin and its awful consequences, right? And to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, that is a, that is a problem for us. Less and less do people want to hear teaching about sin. In fact, as the visitor-friendly model of worship has taken hold over the last few decades in our religious world, what we have found as a casualty of that is teaching about sin. You'll just find in fewer and fewer pulpits do you, do you hear teaching like that. In fact, one writer in an article entitled, Preaching About Sin and Contemporary Protestantism, made this observation. He said, of all the theological topics inviting discussion from the pulpit, there is probably none more potentially distasteful to modern sensibilities than traditional notions of sin and the eternal consequences of those not saved. Nobody wants to talk about sin anymore. And yet, brothers and sisters, I will tell you that that is a problem. Even if we don't stand up here and talk about sin, that doesn't mean the problem goes away, brothers and sisters. The problem is still there. Sin is still sin, even if I don't say that it is. And people who foolishly wander down that path will still be hurt by sin. Even if I don't think it will hurt me, it still will. In fact, our silence on the subject only increases the likelihood that people, people will foolishly stumble down that path and be harmed by that choice. In fact, I would suggest to you that when we stop talking about sin, what we do is we undermine the message of the gospel. Have you thought about that? I will tell you why I became a Christian, brothers and sisters. 
As a young man, I had people who were teaching me about sin and the consequences of sin. And I, when I really began to get my mind around that, it became a powerful impulse that made me seek the Savior. How about you? And so, if we don't talk about that, if we don't help convince people that sin is a problem, their problem, a desperately serious problem, what is it that respond, or provokes people to respond to Jesus? And there will still be eternal consequences. We could choose to listen to our culture and allow ourselves to be deceived about sin, but brothers and sisters, Jesus is still coming. And that day will still come when the trumpet is sound and he returns and he judges and sin will be punished. Whether I acknowledge it or not, those things will happen. And so I would just submit to you that it doesn't help us to keep quiet about sin. In fact, I would suggest that just the opposite is true, that what people need today is straight talk about sin. We need to say what it is. And we need to talk of its awful consequences, and, and we need to point people, and in that sequence, point people to the one who can deliver us from sin. And before we're done this year, we will celebrate that good news as well. And so maybe you guess where the lesson is going today from the reading and from what I just said. We're going to do this morning... A little straight talk about sin. I could have used Genesis 3, but it does seem like we have used that text a lot this year. And so I asked Ruben to help me out this morning and read a little from 2 Samuel chapter 11, because I just think there are some really critical points that need to be made that you and I need to understand about sin, and we can extract them from directly from this chapter. So I'm going to begin at the very end of 2 Samuel 11, at the last sentence there. So be making your way there as we think about this. The first thing we need to say about sin is that sin exists. That sin is a real thing. You know, sometimes, Max, I say things from the pulpit that 30 years ago I never imagined I would get up and say to a crowd of disciples, right? And so as I wrote that down, I intended that to be my first point this morning. And this week as I was putting my outline together, I wrote that down. I wrote down sin exists. And I thought that's one of those things. 30 years ago, I never imagined I would be standing before my church family and saying to you that sin is a real thing. And yet I said that and someone said amen. Because you know that I need to stand up in front of you today and say that sin really does exist, that it's a real thing. And I need to say that because not everyone believes that. Frankly, folks, not everybody believes there's a God. And even those who believe in God don't necessarily believe that God has laid a law down for us that we are obligated to keep. And so, if there is no God or there's no law from God, then there can be no violation of the law of God and thus no sin. The truth is that many more people than that believe that right and wrong is, well, right and wrong is just whatever you think it is. Although I should add that nobody's willing to be consistent on that point. It is certainly what we hear people say all the time, that it's up to everybody to make their own choices about morality, what is right and wrong. And in our culture, we are told that we must tolerate, and what they mean by that is we must accept as equally valid everybody's moral choices. Whatever I decide is right is right, and you ought to embrace it as true whether you believe it or not. I know that's crazy, but that is the world that we live in. 
And certainly they would say that nobody ought to stand up in a church building and suggest that somebody else's moral conclusions are wrong, much less that their moral choices are sinful. We are told to stand up and do that is, is hateful. It's not, it's not like Jesus would be. Ever heard something like that before? So it's against that backdrop that I point you to the very last sentence of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Are you looking at it? Not just the last verse, the last sentence of verse 27. After all of this awful story is laid out for us, and it appears that the story is coming to an awful conclusion, we know that it's not because of the last sentence in verse 27, where the writer says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want you to dwell on those words because I think they are loaded with implications, and maybe it's too easy to pass right by without seeing them. I don't want us to pass by. I want us to pause. Notice, first of all, that he mentions the Lord. Do you see that in verse 27? He talks about the Creator. The Creator, the Creator had said something about what David had done. Now, let me back up to our conversation about Genesis, because we've been saying this all year. Remember, back in Genesis, we're told, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In verse 26 of chapter 1, He made man in His own image, and we said there are implications of that. As the Creator, God has the right to rule. He has inherent authority over the things that He made. Translation into Southeast Texas. He has a right to tell me and you what to do. And that's what we see here back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 27, that the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God had said something about this. In fact, folks, if you look at Exodus 20 beginning at verse 13, very early in the law of God, he had said something about, about several things that David had done here. He had said something about lying in the Ten Commandments, and he had said something about adultery in the Ten Commandments, and he said something about murder in the Ten Commandments. Very early, God had addressed several things that David had done here. The Creator said something about this. But then the second implication of verse 27 is this, that God had some expectations. When God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, these weren't just some suggestions that he wanted them to consider. This was the law. And he gave it with the expectations that men who recognized him as the creator and respected his authority would do just exactly what he had said to do. That's why that last sentence is in verse 27. God is unhappy that David did not do what he had said to do. And so, as we move into chapter 12, we see a third thing. And that is that God is going to hold David accountable for what he has done. You know, the interesting thing about chapter 11 and the way that it ends, I mentioned this a minute ago, is that it looks like the story is over. In fact, I want you to bear in mind that at least a year has gone by since this sin with Bathsheba. A year. You think if you'd done something bad and 12 months went by and nothing happened, it'd be easy to say to yourself, whew, I dodged a bullet there? And I think that's what David had thought. I got away with this. I covered it up. It was kind of complicated, but I'm pretty sharp. I got all of this done except what is said at the end of verse 27. God knew. 
And God would hold him accountable. And there were consequences. That's the fourth thing that I would say. Chapter 12 will only begin to introduce us to them. But listen, the consequences and grief and sorrow that came in David's life after this sin were horrific. In fact, I would submit to you that they hang like an ugly, dark cloud over that moment of passion he enjoyed with Bathsheba. You think by the time all of that, all of that worked itself out and David knew the price that he had paid, if he could do that over again, he would have made a different choice that night on the rooftop. I wanted you to think about that, folks. I wanted to be really straight with you about what we find at the end of verse 27, because I don't think what is true of David's situation is any different than ours. The Creator has spoken to me and you too. David lived under the old law, the law of Moses. We live under a new covenant with Jesus Christ. And in that book that's open in front of you this morning, God has said something about what He wants for us. His will is given there, and He gives it with the expectation that people who acknowledge Him as the Creator would respect His authority and do what He says. The Bible, brothers and sisters, is not a book of suggestions. It is the law of God given with the expectation that every created human being would listen to the Creator and do what He says. And listen, we've already talked in recent weeks how He holds us accountable. There's a day coming and the trumpet's going to sound and God is going to return and there's going to be judgment. And for those who disobey, there will be terrible, terrible consequences. You can find a lot of churches where you will not hear that preached ever. But in this day and time, brothers and sisters, we need some straight talk about sin. And that starts with saying sin is a real thing. It really exists. And all that the Bible says about it is true. We need to embrace that. We need to hear it. We need to share it. Okay, I need to move on. I could spend a lot of time there. i got two more points. Second thing I want you to see in this story is this. I think we learned from this story that, that good men sin. Do you see that in this story? In fact, to me, it is the remarkable thing about this story. Listen, if this story had been told about the wicked king Ahab, I don't think it would jump off the page to us. In fact, even if this had been something that Jacob's evil brother Esau, we've been reading about him, right? Esau was a rotten guy. And if he had done something like this, we'd sort of nod our heads and say, well, you know, that's just kind of how rotten guys are. This isn't a rotten guy. Not in 2 Samuel 11. That's why the story does jump off the page at us, and it grabs our attention. The bad guy in this story is a good guy. It's David, the man described in Samuel as a man after God's own heart. This is David who wrote all of those beautiful psalms that describe who God is and what He does for us in our relationship. In fact, can I just point you to a specific example of that? This is Psalm 5. Will you look there just for a second? Psalm 5. Because I want you to hear what David wrote in Psalm 5, and I pick up in verse 4. David wrote this. He said, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Listen to this. You destroy those who speak 
falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. David wrote that. The same David we're reading about here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The David who did this terrible thing. So I wanted to call that to your attention this morning because I think it illustrates this point on the slide. That we are all susceptible. Even good people are susceptible to sin. Brothers and sisters, none of us get to that place spiritually where we are so grown up in Jesus Christ and so mature and so strong that we don't need to be concerned about sin anymore, that the devil can't get to us. In fact, I would submit to you that the very moment we get to that place when we think we are is the moment that we are most vulnerable to. I had a good friend and a mentor when I was a much younger preacher who became involved in sexual immorality with a lady in the congregation where he preached. In fact, I was with him sitting in his office when all of it broke and his sin was exposed. And as he and I talked about this mess that he had created, he looked at me and he said, you know, I just thought as old as I was at the stage of life I was in, I was past all of it. And he was not. And the devil used the vulnerability that he created to take him down. It destroyed him. So I would submit to you that just the opposite is true, that there is value in acknowledging our vulnerability, in being willing to say, I know the devil can get at me. I know that I can cave to temptation. I need to say that because it makes me more cautious. And it provokes me to put down some some barriers in my life so that I, I am helped in my effort to resist sin. Don't ever get to that place when you say to yourself, he can't get to me. Nobody's that strong. Brothers and sisters, if he can get to this good man, he can get to me and you too. Good men do terrible things. I see that in that story, in this story, and I see one more thing, and this is where we're going to wrap up this morning. I also see that sin often starts small. I am a little reluctant to say that but because I don't want to be misunderstood, but do you see what I'm saying when I say to you this morning that sin often starts small? Do you see that in David's story? Back up to the very beginning, from the last verse to the second verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, look at verse number 2. Notice what the text says. Now when it was evening, David, when evening came, rather, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. 
Now, I will tell you, folks, there's a lot that people will read into verse number two. And what I'm going to do today is just work with what we're told in verse number two. And that is that David stumbled into an awkward situation. This was supposed to be a private moment, as with all of us when we're taking a bath, right? That's meant to be private, and that's what Bathsheba intended. But it didn't work out that way. Perhaps it just happened by accident that David stumbled across a scene that was supposed to be private. But as it worked out, this, this awkward circumstance brought David to a moment of decision. Now that he has stumbled into this private moment, he's going to have to decide what he's going to do, right? He had a choice to make here. In fact, what David could have done is David could have turned away, left that circumstance, and worked really hard to put that scene out of his mind, right? And had he made that choice, I would probably be preaching on something different this morning. I don't even know that this story would be in the Bible. If it were in the Bible, it would have been a completely different story, wouldn't it? But that isn't what he did. He stumbled against the, uh, into this moment, into this situation that was meant to be private, and instead of choosing to, to turn away, he stood his ground, and he kept looking. Now, you don't hear me defending his behavior, but do you understand how a man could do that? And because he kept looking, the looking turned to lusting. Can you understand how a man would do that? I want to be crystal clear about something. What David did was sinful. You heard me say that, right? He has already crossed the line because Jesus would say in Matthew 5 and verse 28 that a man who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already crossed the line. He's already sinned. In fact, the Lord is real serious about that because in verse 29, he would start talking about plucking out eyes and cutting off hands to be sure you didn't do that. But will you also agree with me that what is described in verse number two is a long, long way from murder? I don't even think that entered David's mind that night on the rooftop in Jerusalem. In fact, who would ever imagine that from this one moral failure, one step in the wrong direction, he just looked too long and he lusted, who would have imagined that, that all the awful things mapped out for us in chapter 11 would come? Who would have thought this story would end with murder? What I want to say to you is that sometimes sin is exactly that way. It starts with what we would consider a small step in the wrong direction, but it rarely stays right. 
So two admonitions I would take away from that reality. Number one, brothers and sisters, we need to be very, very careful that we are not deceived about sin because we tend to do that with ourselves. What we say to ourselves is that we can just dabble in it just a little bit. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to take my big toe and just, just stick that little bit down into the water when we don't realize that there's a gator down there that's about to grab hold of our foot and pull us under. Is that vivid enough for you tonight? Because that's how it is. We think we're going to dabble in it just a little bit, only to find ourselves suddenly and, and, and unexpectedly and shockingly caught up in this, in this big, awful mess. Let me ask you, how many times have you heard someone say these words after they started small and did it up in some terrible place? How many of you times have you heard someone say these words? How did I ever get here? You ever heard that before? Do you hear it in their voice? This isn't where I was planning to go. This is how I thought it would work out. Yeah, they thought they were going to dabble just a little bit, only to get swallowed up in this big, huge mess. And they're wondering, how did I ever get here? The man who cheats on his wife and destroys his family and loses his reputation, and he asks, how did I ever get here? You don't want to know what the answer to that is? He flirted with that lady the first time, even though he knew that was not a conversation that he ought to be having with someone that wasn't his wife, he flirted the first time and started down that road. Or what about the man that gets arrested for dabbling in child pornography? How does a guy get there? You want to know the answer to that? Somewhere back there, he stumbled across something on the internet that he knew he wasn't supposed to be looking at. And just like David, instead of closing that screen, he kept looking. And he took that first step. So let's not be deceived about this, folks. We think we know, but we don't. Once we start down that road, we have no idea where it's going to take us, how far we're going to go, and how awful the costs are going to be. If there is nothing else taught in 2 Samuel 11, that is certainly there. And so the second admonition, because, I, because that is true, the second admonition I want to leave you with is this, be afraid. I'm doing my level best to scare all of us to death about ever foolishly wandering off into sin, even taking that first seemingly small step in the wrong direction. Be afraid. Be afraid of what you don't know. We don't know where that's going to go. You know, folks, that's why you've heard me preach from this pulpit over and over again and say to young people and say to everybody else too, don't ever take the first drink of alcohol. Don't do it even once. You know why I say that? Because I have been with too many people at the end of that road. I have seen the people who've lost their jobs seen the people. I've been there and wept with them over their destroyed marriages and the harm that they've done with their children. I've seen people who've lived there for decade after decade and wasted their life in a bottle. I stand up here in front of you and say, don't take the first 
drink because I've been with people at the end of the road and I don't want any of you to go there. And the reality is, statistically, a huge number of people who take the first one end up in that awful mess. In fact, I'll just be honest with you. I get frustrated with people who want to launch into these silly little quibbles over whether the Bible technically condemns drinking a little bit or not. So that you don't misunderstand me, you've heard me say it before. I think the Bible teaches don't have any of that stuff. But even if you don't agree with me on that, on that point, can we agree on this? This road doesn't take people to good places. Wouldn't wisdom dictate that we don't go there at all? And how utterly foolish to give people license to go there. Can we just all say the same thing? Whether you believe it's technically a violation of Scripture or not, it's not a road you ever want to be on. You know why I preach that? Because I've been with people at the end of the road. And those of you who want to quibble over that, maybe what you need to do is spend some more time with people at the end of the road. I think it'll change your mind about it. Dr. Russell Moore made an interesting observation while commenting on one of the recent scandals surrounding a politician. He said, temptation only works if the possible futures open to you are concealed. Do you see that? He said consequences, including those of judgment day, must be hidden from view or outright denied. And I think that is exactly the problem. In the moment of our temptation, we get our heads down and we look only at the moment. You want to know how to beat temptation, folks? Pick your head up. Look down the road. Ponder the possibilities. This is not a small step in the wrong direction. This is opening myself up to a road that takes me to terrible places. And I need to have the wisdom to see that potential disaster and to fear it and to make better choices. Sin is awful. Oh. Don't ever start down that road. That's the straight talk about sin. That's the bad news. What will be my pleasure over the next few months is to be able to talk to you about the good news as well. And that is, even those are, our sins are as scarlet, through the blood of Jesus Christ, they can be white as wool. What does that mean? Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. And through the blood that he shed as Calvary, he can wash us clean from sin. Not only is there a problem introduced in Scripture, there is a plan introduced in Scripture through which Jesus delivers us from sin. And it may be that right now, someone in this audience knows that you need to be rescued. Well, you don't have to wait till we talk about the plan later this fall, because the plan the plan is here today for you to be saved. And so if you are ready to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and to let him cleanse you through baptism from your sins, he is ready to do that for you today. You don't have to carry this sin problem even one more moment. So if you need to respond to him, you make your way to the front right now. While we stand, while we sing.